Before we actually start Sunday school this morning, I want to refresh you a little bit. And I'm not, I'm not going to do a laborious refresh or anything like that. But I do want to at least touch base on what we started out planning on doing here in this class and where we were and how we got to where we are. Um, we talked about what worship was like in the early church. And when I say early church, I mean when people in the year 70 AD were getting together and worshiping, what were the services like? In 100 AD, when they're gathering, what were the worship services like? What was it like to take the Lord's Supper in an ancient church service? And we talked also about samples of their preaching. We looked at a sermon that was preached by a ruling elder, um, probably named Clement, around the year 120 AD, right? A very early, early sermon in the, in the church. And we looked at that. We saw how they preached. And then we continued to move through history, right? We moved up to the era of the church fathers. And we saw a lot of their specifics about what they did and what they, their positions were on various issues. One of the things we talked a lot about was how the early church fathers resisted the idea of things like images, and the encroaching of things that they saw as pagan into the church. And then one of the other things that we also saw was as we tipped over from the era of the church fathers into the Middle Ages. One of the biggest changes was the fact that the church began to fill up with pagans, right? Because as soon as you make it the national religion, as soon as you make it the empire's religion, what happens? Everyone wants to be part of it. Either they do it because, wow, this must be true or interesting or exciting. Or maybe they just go because... Um, they think there's social advantage in going to church, right? Suddenly now, if the emperor is a Christian, well, maybe I should be too. So for every various reason, you see the church go through these changes. And we saw during the Middle Ages especially some really what I've described as negative changes took place in the church. Things became more complex. Worship became more complex. Approaching God became more complex. Um, you had practices like withholding the cup from the people where they wouldn't give the cup to people. Instead, the priest would stand at the front and he would drink the cup of the Lord's Supper by himself and the people wouldn't. Uh, oftentimes they would offer the bread and people wouldn't come. Why? Because they were frightened, because they were afraid, because they were not to- told about the grace of Christ to forgive sins. And so instead they did not approach the table. Uh, and so you start to see these developments take place. And thankfully, we did get to, that would have been a nasty place to end on, I think, uh, for the summer. We did get to talk about the Reformation. And we talked about how the Reformation was not just a reclaiming of the preaching of the gospel of Jesus Christ. But it was even more than that. It was a Reformation of worship. And so they understood that the things that are happening in the worship service are are a reflection of our theology. And so if the theology says it's a fearful thing to approach God and God is angry with you, then when you have a worship service, what are you going to see? You're going to see things in that service that reflect that hesitant posture. And you're going to see this unwillingness to approach God. And so the reformers, of course, went back and they said, we need to make sure that whatever we do, I'll try to talk into the mic, sorry. And the reformers said, whatever we do needs to come from God's word. It needs to come from scripture. It should not come from our imaginations because they've been living under people's imaginations of how they should worship. For years and years, they had been bound up with superstition and all sorts of things that didn't come from the Bible. And so the reformers pressed back and said, if it doesn't come from God's word, we shouldn't be doing it in worship. And so that's kind of the 
we, we, while we looked at preaching in the Reformed period, in the Reformation period, we had to stop. And so we didn't get to go any further. And so today, we actually get to do what I wanted to do all summer, um, which was keep talking about this subject because I love it. Um, I, what I want us to get to is actually how do we as a church, and when I say we, I mean, I mean Evergreen. What is, what is our worship like here at Evergreen? And where do we come from? Um, where is our little branch of the tree? How is it that, that we worship here? You know, we sing psalms, we sing hymns, we have a call to worship, we have a sermon that sits at the center of the service, we have the Lord's Supper, we observe these things, and we saw how very, very much, I, I hope you saw this, at least especially looking at the early church, the similarities of the simplicity of the service with what we do. But I think we would be I think we would be kidding ourselves if I sat here and said that the church fathers, that's where we get our worship from. Um, really, we get it from the word of God. But we also aren't in denial that we have a connection with church history. And so we know that the way we worship still comes from a specific time in a specific place. And so that actually is Puritan England. Uh, the Puritans, if you've ever heard of the Puritans, then you know you, you should know that a lot of the things that you see here actually come from that time period. But if I was just to start talking about the Puritans and their worship, it would not make sense. It wouldn't make sense why we do certain things. And so I want to give you the bigger picture. I want to give you the bigger story. And so that means we get to go into the uh, adventurous time period of the 1500s in England. And I hope you like history. I love history. You'll be able to see that. But that doesn't mean I'm an expert. So if some of these things that I'm going to teach and talk about, if you ask me a question, I might not know the answer any deeper than what I have here. So feel free to ask the questions and just know that I'm not a historian. I'm a pastor who reads historians. Like, and that's diff- there's a difference. <laughs> um, so we can't understand the rise of Puritanism if we don't understand what happened in the English church. If we don't understand where the Church of England came from and what the English Reformation is, because this is our heritage. Uh, and so I want to start by not, not by talking about the king uh, or by talking uh, about uh, some church leader, but I actually want to start off by talking about somebody who's very fundamental to the history of, the, of Christianity in England, and that man is actually William Tyndale. Um, William Tyndale was a scholar. Uh, he was a, an expert in the languages of Scripture. He lived in the late 1400s. So we're talking like, here's the date for Tyndale. He lived in 1496 to 1536. So Tyndale, in 1526, finishes a full translation of the New Testament. Now, the thing you need to know is that in England, that was illegal. And it was illegal because in the... 1300s, 1394, I think, John Wycliffe made his own translation of the New Testament, and he was burned at the stake. He was executed for doing that. So Wycliffe was seen as a heretic, and if you wanted to put the, the, the Bible into the English language, it was seen as a crime, because it was a crime. Uh, it was a crime, and so you would be executed for it. So what happens in 1526? Well, William Tyndale produces his... Uh, his translation of the New Testament. And 10 years later, King Henry VIII does not come to his rescue and Tyndale gets executed. Now, Henry VIII doesn't execute him, but he also doesn't come to his rescue. Yeah, Benjamin. Why was it illegal? 
Uh, it was illegal because it was seen as usurping the church. It was seen as usurping the king. Um, remember, this is a time where, the, where religious belief and political belief are extremely tied together. And so if you undercut the theology of the church it was viewed, then you undercut the state as well. And so any kind of religious change is seen as a threat to political order. And so for that reason, you know, the, the government is very uh, keen on making sure that the Bible is not available in English. It's got to be in Latin or it's got to be in Greek and Hebrew. Not that they had very many people who could handle the Greek and Hebrew, but those are the languages that are allowed. But what's not allowed? English. Um, and so Henry VIII abandons Tyndale. He doesn't come to his rescue. However, here's what happens. In later years, Thomas Cranmer, we're going to talk about who Thomas Cranmer is. He's really important. Thomas Cranmer is bringing reform to the English church. And Henry does permit Tyndale's Bible in large print to be made. So, you know, if you think of it like, you know, you think about what success looks like. You think about what success looks like in life. And you might think to yourself, you know, this guy puts his work, his life and all his energy into translating the New Testament into the common language for everybody. And then he gets killed. Well, that seems like a very unceremonious, unceremonious end to the man's life. And yet Tyndale's legacy is still felt. Uh, our Bibles that, we, that I preach from, the ESV Bible, still reflects the King James language. And the King James language of the Bible reflects Tyndale's Bible. Um, let's see. So when the English scholars under King James, and we'll, we'll talk more about this, I think, when we talk about James. But see, James is a ways off. When King James commissions the, the Bible translation that he commissions, 76% of the Old Testament is from Tyndale. And 83% of the language in the New Testament in the King James is from Tyndale. So just think of that. Most of the New Testament is Tyndale's translation. And the King James translators are using his, his language. Why? Because his, his Bible actually did become popular in England. And it actually did become known. And it became the way that people thought when they tried to translate. Um, one of the things I remember from my own Bible class is, you know, you take Greek, you take Hebrew. And when you start translating a passage, at some point you start to recognize it. Um, which is why you can totally cheat in uh, Bible college or in seminary when you're doing your language classes. If they give you a Bible passage to translate and you go, oh, I know what this passage is. You, so do a lot of memorization before and you'll do great in your language classes. And no doubt for these, for these uh, translators, they have, re- they have read Tyndale. And so when they are translating a passage, they cannot unhear the language that Tyndale chooses to translate it into. Um, so if we remember that, that the Reformation was really about worshiping according to Scripture, we have to see the beginning of these things as actually starting with Wycliffe and really Tyndale because these guys are lighting a fire. These guys are lighting a fire essentially um, that really you can't put out. It's, you just can't put it out. So Henry VIII plays a sizable role, and we're going to talk about him in a second, but he plays a sizable role, but we have to start with Tyndale because it's because of Tyndale that people in England were able to know what the Bible said so that they could ask themselves, is the way we've been worshiping from the Bible? And so, you know, you have to start with Tyndale. Now, let's talk about Henry VIII. Henry VIII, Henry Tudor. Sometimes you may, maybe you've heard of the Tudors. Um, 
He was king from 1509 to 1547. He is, he's there for a very long stretch of English history. Um, you can't talk about the ground that Puritanism grew out of if you don't know who Henry VIII is. Um, how do we talk about Henry? I'm not going to tell you his whole life story. Here's what you should know about Henry. This guy had a lot of wives. Um, so he's married to Catherine of Aragon. He has an affair with his wife's lady-in-waiting, Mary Bolin. And I might be saying her name wrong, uh, but I'm just going to say Bolin, so sorry. Um, so Catherine, though, Catherine's his wife. What's the problem he's got with Catherine? She is not giving him a son. And so he becomes very impatient with his wife during this time. I want a son, right? <laughs> Give me a son. And he has very few options for producing a male heir. He ultimately settles on rejecting Catherine as his wife. And he wants to find someone else to marry who is of childbearing age. And so he becomes enamored with Mary Bolin's sister, Anne. So here's the thing about Anne. Unlike her sister, Mary, Anne would not yield to his attempts to seduce her, um, which made her very desirable. <laughs> you say no to a man, and eventually it's like, why not? <laughs> and that's the way Henry was. Henry really wanted her. She would refuse to become his mistress. And um, one of the things I like to think of is this. Imagine this. If it was not for the steely reserve of Anne, we might never have had an English Reformation. Right? <laughs> if this woman wasn't holding out and waiting to be married. Look, I'm not going to do anything with you unless we get married. If this wasn't her character, then we might not have had an English Reformation. And so Henry sees Anne as a potential wife. The more she says no, the more he thinks she's wife material. It's crazy. Um, he'll feel different later too, by the way. Um, so um, to do that, though, he has a massive obstacle in front of him. Because who is he married to? Catherine of Aragon. He's still married to her. And so at the time, Henry was considered a devout, well-informed Catholic. Like This is a guy who wrote a book. Um, actually, I don't know if it would be a book or a letter, but it was, a, it was a, uh, in defense of the Pope and in defense of the seven sacraments of the Roman Catholic Church. We talked about those seven sacraments back when we did the medieval period. Uh, so go back to that lesson. And by the way, if you want to brush up, all of these Sunday schools are on the website. So you can just go back and uh, listen to them if you like. But he, he was considered a, a, a Catholic in good standing, a Roman Catholic in good standing. Um, Pope Leo actually gave him a title after he wrote this defense of the seven sacraments. Does anyone remember the title that the Pope gave to the King of England that he still has today? Defender of the faith, right? And he gets that title from the Pope and he hangs on to it and every one of his kids hang on to it. They love that title. Um, even when they no longer love the Pope, they still love the title. They think it's a good name. Uh, in fact, Charles, Charles, King Charles is called the defender of the faith. And there was all sorts of debate. Is he going to be defender of a faith, defender of the faith, defender of all faiths? And no, he's still just called defender of the faith. Um, now, here's the crazy part, though. Like, if he can't manipulate Anne, if he can't get her to marry him, and if the Pope's not going to give him a divorce from Catherine of Aragon, what's he supposed to do? And the answer is, there's a law for that. It's called the act of supremacy. I'm going to move this over more so that I'm not in the way as much. So I'm going to just put that right there. Um, so there's a law for that. It's called the act of supremacy. So in 1534, seven years after he asks the Pope for an annulment, you know, I, I don't want to say that Henry VIII is a patient man. 
but seven years seems patient to me. Um, after the Pope says, I'm not going to give you this annulment, there's no grounds for divorce here. He passes the Act of Supremacy, which declared the King of England to be the head of the Church of England. And so this is officially known as the beginning of the English Reformation. If you want to know where the English Reformation comes from, it's here. Um, Now, that does not mean that suddenly Henry becomes some kind of Protestant, right? It's not like he suddenly becomes a a reformer. Um, When he first, when they first pass this act of supremacy, the, the changes in the church are very slight. So they remove mention of the Pope from prayers, um, they eliminate the feast day for Thomas Beckett. He's seen as a Catholic saint, a Roman Catholic saint, and uh, they decide they're not going to do that anymore. But the change doesn't actually come until they bring some other very important men on board to help with the Reformation. Two of those names you may have, well, one of you already heard from me earlier. One is Thomas Cranmer. Does anyone, raise your hand if you've heard of Thomas Cranmer. All right, a few, a few of us. Thomas Cranmer wrote really wonderful, they're called collects, which a collect is just a very short prayer. Um, I have a little book in there, and it's just got a bunch of collects written by Thomas Cranmer for the Psalter, and they're amazing. They, they're little one-sentence prayers, and they just pack the punch of like Mike Tyson, you know? Like they're just really, really great little prayers. Um, and the other guy is Hugh Latimer, and we're going to hear about Hugh Latimer later on. So he brings these, these men on, and not just these men, but these are the two, the two big ones that he brings on that, that I, uh, you know, I guess I want to draw the most attention to because I love them. Um, but the change does come over time. Thomas Cranmer gets installed as the Archbishop of Canterbury, which is basically over all of England. And he oversees the gradual reform of the English church. It takes 22 years. He's very slow. He's very careful in the work that he does. But he knows that a reformation of worship in England has to take time. And so you start to see this, the changes that happen. Um, by the way, Cranmer was awesome. He wasn't perfect, but he was awesome. I love Thomas Cranmer. Cranmer spent time in Lutheran Germany. He was familiar with what Luther had done in Germany. He had tasted and seen uh, what worship could be like in the Reformation period. Um, but he was not immediately accepted by the bishops who were under him. And so he becomes the Archbishop of Canterbury, but that doesn't mean that all the bishops under him are listening to him and doing what he says. So this is why I say the work takes a long time. Um, He um, makes changes. He insists that any changes in the church's practice have to be bound by scripture. So Cranmer basically says, we're going to make changes and whatever we do, we're going to be able to show from the word of God that this is what the Bible says. And so they start doing, doing away with things. They dismantle the cult of the saints. Um, there are false relics in monasteries all over England, so they get rid of them. You know, when you're thinking of like relics, what kind of relics do you imagine that they have in the churches? Well, they've got like a comb that belonged to Mary Magdalene, um, chains that held St. Peter. Um, They also eliminated certain holy days as public holidays in England. That's the start of how these things start to happen. Um, And then they publish a book called the Bishop's Book in 1537. So three years after the Act of Supremacy. And the Bishop's Book is, well, the Bishop's Book attacks the use of images of Christ and the saints, which for people who are used to Roman Catholicism and used to making images all the time, that would be a a shock, right? Um, they prohibited lighting candles before images of the saints. In the Roman Catholic understanding, when you light a candle, you are praying. 
So candle lighting is a form of prayer. And so people very superstitiously would have a photo, an image of a saint and they would light a candle in front of that saint. Um, that was one of the things that becomes prohibited in England. Um, they destroy the tomb of Thomas Beckett. Uh, again, he was a, martyred, uh, a martyr who uh, died in, I think it was the 1100s. Um, because the king of England got angry at him because he excommunicated some of his friends. So, um, so Thomas Beckett's tomb is destroyed. Um, another change is they adopt the Eastern Orthodox slash Reformed numbering of the Ten Commandments instead of the Roman Catholic numbering of the Ten Commandments. And if you don't remember that, then, then uh, go back to the lesson from the Middle Ages that we did. And, we'll, and in that lesson, you'll hear me talking about the differences in the numbering and especially how that related to images of Jesus because they were actually very closely related. Um, other changes. They stopped having masses for the dead. So when somebody died in England, they wouldn't have a mass for them anymore. That was one of the other changes. Yeah. So, Adam, the, uh, what's the right way to think of the Church of England? It sounds like it existed by name prior to the Act of Supremacy, mm-hmm. and it existed there. Would it be considered a Roman Catholic Church in England? Mm-hmm. And then the Act of Supremacy makes Henry VIII the ruler over that body. Mm-hmm. So I'm just trying to – there were other Roman Catholic churches wherever they were. Well, think of, think of there as being regions, right? So you have archbishops over particular regions. Yeah. It, it, think of it like this. It's almost like Henry VIII becomes the ruler over the Archbishop of Canterbury. Okay. So now he's in charge of this guy instead of the pope. So their region just becomes segmented off. Now, that doesn't mean that Roman Catholics didn't still try making inroads, didn't try sending the sort of missionaries of their own uh, into England and making their own forays and trying to take the place back. But for the most part, you know, legally, the change has been made. That's what I'm asking. So it's not like the Church of England was created by that. It was already in existence. Yeah. The, the king just kind of said, well, that's fine. Yeah, all the all the uh, the the buildings, all of the, uh, the the priests, everybody. They just kind of grab them and they just your Church of England now. Okay. We're in charge of you still. Jurisdiction. Yeah, the jurisdiction is now shifted over to Henry the Eighth. But as you can see, Henry's beliefs are not Protestant. He really. What he really wants is to be able to divorce Catherine of Aragon. That's all he wants. I mean, imagine being poor, poor Catherine. Like, this guy moves heaven and earth just to get away from you. Like, <laughs> that's, a, that's a nasty divorce right there. You know, it really is. Like, a whole church goes down with it. Or, actually, anyway, I don't know. Uh, <laughs> but he, he moves heaven and earth to make this happen, which is, it's almost humorous and it's sad all at the same time. But, um. So anyway, um, by the way, um, old habits die hard, right? So imagine that you're used for centuries to having a mass when a loved one dies and then telling people they can't do it anymore. Um, People would have secret masses. People would behind the scenes have them. They were replaced with funerals in which you don't pray for the dead, right? You you will notice um, this morning we did, we did, we, we, we prayed for Janice, right? We didn't pray for Carolee. Carolee doesn't need our prayers. She is with the Lord. She's with the Lord Jesus now. Um, but this was, would not have been the instinct of an English person at this time. Their instinct would be to pray for that person who has departed. That would be their instinct. So those, those kind of habits are hard to get out of people's reflexes. So they take, they take a long time. But 
Kramer announces all of these other changes, and he listed them in a document called Homily on Good Works. And, and I'm actually going to read this little section selection from it and just listen to this list. Tons of these items, I don't even know what they are. Right? <laughs> there were so many practices and superstitions and things that had no connection with scripture that they were doing that Kramer gets rid of. So here it is. He says, he says briefly to pass over the ungodly and counterfeit religion. Let us rehearse some other kinds of papalistic superstitions and abuses as of beads, of lady psalters. I don't know what a lady psalter is. Um, and rosaries, of 15 O's, of St. Bernard's verses, of St. Agatha's letters, of purgatory, of masses, satisfactory, of stations and jubilees, of feigned relics and hallowed beads, Bells, bread, water, palms, candles, fire, and other such, others of superstitious fastings, of fraternities, of brotherhoods, of pardons, with such like merchandise, which were so esteemed and abused to the great prejudice of God's glory and commandments. Thus was the people through ignorance, so blinded with the goodly show and appearance of those things, that they thought the keeping of them to be a more holiness, a more perfect service. And honoring of God and more pleasing to God than keeping God's commandments. So they thought it was more important to do these superstitious acts than it was to keep the commandments God has clearly given to us in his word. Now, um, and I mean, that that was quite a list, right? I I would say I knew what 25% of those things were. (laughs) Yeah. When we toured St. Stephen's Basilica in Yeah. And so it was very, very interesting, culturally, yeah. but that was the, that's the Catholic church there, the big one. Did you see any other relics while you were well, on your adventures? Well, that's the one that really stood out to yeah. The shriveled hand, his actual hand. Yeah, yeah, the shriveled hand. Well, that would stick with you, I'm definitely. I, not very often we see shriveled hands around churches. Uh, not here. But I, pr- please promise me that if I die, that when I die, you guys will keep my shriveled hands. So I'm just kidding. Don't do that. Yeah. Do not keep my shriveled hand in a glass case around here. Um, um, so Henry VIII does eventually die, as, as one does, right? But near the end of his life, he reaffirmed Roman beliefs. So he, he, he believed still in celibacy for priests. He still believed in transubstantiation to his death. He still, he still believed in prayers for the saints and for the mass. Um, he left a huge amount of money so that masses would still be said for him for years. So, so Henry was not on board with the changes, but he got his divorce. So he's just like, fine, you know, whatever. I didn't. I don't have that in my notes, Larry. Do you, is this for? Is this for public consumption? Okay. Well. All right. So, um, so here's what happens, though. Henry dies, and there are struggles among Henry's children. 
And the first child is Edward. He's, he's king for six years. Uh, he's a little one. Uh, he only lives to be six years old. So imagine being 10 years old and you become the king. And so he is the king for six years. But he's surrounded by Protestant friendly Lord protectors. Um, one is his uncle who is a strident Protestant. And during this six-year window, Protestants from around the world come to participate in the English Reformation. So uh, from Germany, Martin Bootser comes from Germany to become a professor at Cambridge. Um, From Italy, uh, one of my favorite, he's not very well known among your average church member, but his name is Peter Martyr Vermigli. And I might be saying Vermigli's name wrong. I've heard people say Vermigli, but I just don't have the guts to do that pronunciation. So... Um, it's Peter Martyr Vermigli. Peter Martyr was the head of a monastery in, in Italy. Uh, and he, he, even while he was a monk, defended Martin Luther's view of justification by faith alone, uh, argued it before, um, before cardinals. He defended the view, but eventually he did realize that his life was in danger. Because Edward was the king, he said, this is an opportunity. I can go to England. So he goes to England and uh, he becomes a professor also at Oxford. And he also um, helps write what became the Book of Common Prayer. I'm going to go ahead and pass this around. Um, This is my copy of the Book of Common Prayer. I know Presbyterians aren't supposed to have copies of the Book of Common Prayer. Um, And worse yet, this is from the Episcopal Church. Oh, wait, I'm sorry. I said I would never say a mean thing about another church. This is the American Episcopal Church, the 1528 edition, I think. Um, I'm just going to pass this around and just share it with you all so you can take a look. But, yeah, this is from 1928. Just to give you an idea of what's in the Book of Common Prayer, um, it has many prayers in it now, that version that Cranmer didn't write. And so you've got a mixture of of uh, modern stuff in the version that's there. But anyway, you could still get an idea for how it's laid out. Um, but Peter Martyr, he had a virtually the same view of the Lord's Supper as John Calvin. And so when he's helping to write the liturgy for the Church of England, they got good guys working on it. They have really good guys working on the, 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 the liturgy. Um, you also have people from Scotland come. John Knox. You've probably heard the name John Knox before. John Knox comes to England during the time of Edward. Now, one group that's really not welcome in England is the Anabaptists. So they don't have a big presence in England at that time. Um, So under Edward, the church adopts a stronger Protestant identity. Um, Altars are removed from the churches. Remember, we talked about the difference between an altar and a table, right? What this is, this is a table, right? But an altar... Uh, is completely solid and it is set back against the wall. Does anyone remember why it's set against the wall? As the priest administers the supper, where must they stand? You must stand between the people and the supper, right? You, there's no way to face the people. And so you'll notice that when we administer the supper, it is open, it is out for all. And the way that the, that the Roman Catholics did that, they, they face away from the people. Um, altars were removed along with candles and they were replaced with a simple wooden table for the Lord's Supper. So that's a change that takes place in England that's taking place across Europe as well. Not just, not just happening in England. Um, crucifixes were removed and what were they replaced with? Simple crosses. You remove the image of Jesus from the church 
And instead, now you have a cross to remind you of the death of Jesus. Uh, They stopped the use of holy water under Edward. They ceased ceased the use of holy salt in baptisms. I don't know if you knew that. They they would put salt on people um, from, we don't know how far back it goes, but they believed that it was like an exorcism. So they would perform like an exorcism when they would do a baptism. Uh, And so they stopped doing that. Um, They stopped using priestly dress and they replaced it with a surplice, S-U-R-P-L-I-C-E. A surplice is like a a loose white outer vestment with full sleeves. Um, This sounds like progress and it certainly was progress compared to Roman Catholicism. And yet there were many in England for whom these reforms did not go far enough. And when we get to the next lesson, we're going to talk about what the regulative principle is and why these changes weren't enough. Um, but, and, but for the moment, I just want to say that the arguments of the Church of England's defenders was that these things were all adiaphora. What does adiaphora mean? Adiaphora. Maybe you've heard it that way. Something indifferent. Something that it's not forbidden. It's not commanded. So it's neutral, right? It's something neutral. And if it's neutral, then it can be done. That's what the defenders of the Church of England said. They say, look, as long as the Bible doesn't forbid it, then it's allowed in worship, right? There's no verse in the Bible that says you can't light a candle. Um, This is an example. And then the critics of the continuing Roman practices argued instead for rigorous scriptural authority, right? They said something can't just be indifferent for it to be permitted. It has to be commanded, If it's going to be kept, if we're going to keep it, we should be able to find it in scripture somewhere. And so they could understand scripture reading and singing sermons, uh, the singing and sermons and prayer and baptism and the Lord's Supper and public worship. Right. You can find all those things in scripture. But what they objected to was having those extra things that were not from scripture imposed upon them and said, you have to do these things. And so. The reason I'm I'm highlighting this is because this was the core concern that distinguished the Puritans from everybody else in the Church of England. The Puritans are the ones who are saying, find it in God's word. Tell us in God's word where it's taught. And so they were opposed to having those things imposed on them. So the Book of Common Prayer is issued in 1549. Okay, again, this is during the time of Edward, right smack dab in the middle of Edward's time. The Book of Common Prayer uh, is written in 1549. 1552, there's a new edition, and it's far more Protestant. It's more explicitly Protestant. Um, so I'm going to talk a little bit about the Book of Common Prayer, and I don't know if I'll finish before we, we're done in seven minutes, but we'll see. I'm not, I won't keep us over. Um, so we might just resume talking about it again in a little bit. But the Book of Common Prayer, Lewis Spitz calls it a splendid piece of studied ambiguity. Um, sufficiently traditional to satisfy the conservatives and yet so phrased especially as to permit the more advanced reformed to use it in good conscience. Um, Thomas Cranmer wanted all of them to feel comfortable using this together and that meant you're uniting a, a wide swath of people which means that there's something vague about the Book of Common Prayer. There are certain doctrines and theologies that you maybe get hinted at or spoken of as Truths, but they aren't spelled out for you sort of in the way that a church confession would. Um, 
So they passed something called the Act of Uniformity. And I don't know why I didn't write the date down. Um, But the Act of Uniformity takes place. What's the Act of Uniformity? The Act of Uniformity said that if a church didn't use the prayer book, that the minister who didn't use the prayer book would get six months in prison and have to pay a hefty fine. So this was not... This was not just a matter of, you know, this is a good idea. Churches, you maybe should use this. Maybe this will help you. Maybe this will help us all to worship better, right? Instead, uh, it was actually a pretty serious thing. You get thrown in prison. Now, it wasn't a death sentence, but it was very intimidating. And it was intimidating enough that a lot of people in England actually went along with it. And so you've got the Book of Common Prayer, and it is an attempt to take this widely divergent uh, English church and bring some unity to it. So if you if everybody's using the Book of Common Prayer, then everybody's doing the same prayers between churches. They're doing the same lectionary. That is, they're doing the same scripture reading. Um, there's uniformity. If you go to one church, it's going to feel like if you went to that other church, right? Um, now, I think the Book of Common Prayer contains amazing prayers, especially in the edition that Cranmer and, and Vermigli worked on. Uh, And I like to privately use them for myself. I like to use pre-written prayers sometimes. Um, Not only does the Book of Common Prayer have really succinct, potent prayers in it, but it has these other rituals that were drawn from ancient sources that we still use today. Um, I use the wedding liturgy that's in the Book of Common Prayer when I do weddings. The vows that you are used to hearing, the traditional wedding vows, come from the Book of Common Prayer. Um, I use the words of commitment from the funeral liturgy of the Book of Common Prayer, um, where you place the, 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 de- the dust onto the grave and you say those words, ashes to ashes, dust to dust. Um, all of that comes from the Book of Common Prayer. I just don't know a better liturgy for those really important events. Um, now, those of a more Protestant disposition hated it, not because of its content, but because it was an imposition. What they said was, look, you're, you're binding our conscience. You're telling us you have, we have to pray like this. We have to preach like this. We have to preach on this subject at these given dates. It's just all too much. So John Knox, John Knox made a contribution to the, to the prayer book. Um, and it's something that's called the black rubric. I'm going to end talking about this. Um, so in the Catholic Mass... It was required to kneel when you receive the mass. And so they saw it as a sign of respect. After all, this is Jesus's actual body and his actual blood that you're receiving. And so what else could you do in the presence of the body of Jesus but to kneel? And so in the Anglican service, the people were still said to kneel. And it says to do it in the book. Like if you look in the Book of Common Prayer, you get to that section. And it does say that you should physically kneel. Uh, However, Knox objected to the kneeling. He said, look, uh, kneeling communicates something and it communicates something to this crowd that is recovering from Roman Catholicism that we should not encourage. And so he said, we should not. We should just stay seated to receive the Lord's Supper instead. And Cranmer didn't want to make that change. You know, he basically said, look, I realize we're trying to cure these people of Roman Catholicism, um, but we want to keep people kneeling. And so instead, they kept kneeling, but they added something to the book. They added something to the Book of Common Prayer. And it's a little explanatory note. And it was added, and this is what it said. 
It said, while it's appropriate to kneel to receive the Lord's Supper, this, it was, not, this was not because they believed in transubstantiation. So basically Knox basically says, I can live with this if you make this change and you add this little change. And so um, here's the actual change that they put. This is the wording that they put. They say, we do declare that this is not meant thereby, that any adoration is done or ought to be done, either unto the sacramental bread or wine there bodily received or unto any real and essential presence, there being Christ's natural flesh and blood. For as concerning the sacramental bread and wine, they remain still in their very natural substances and therefore may not be adored. For that, that, was, that is idolatry to be abhorred by all faithful Christians. And as concerning the natural body and blood of the Savior Christ, they are in heaven and not here. For it is against the truth of Christ's true natural body to be in more places in one, in one at another time. So when we get to the next part of the series, we're going to talk about principles of worship. And we're going to discuss the sort of things that had to be dealt with during this time period. You know, how do we receive the supper? How should we, how should a Christian, what should our posture as a Christian be physically when we receive the Lord's Supper? Um, Do we stand? Do we sit? Do we kneel? The New Testament doesn't give us an instruction on whether, on, on where we're supposed to stand, how we're supposed to stand, whether we're supposed to sit. And so you have some methods of doing things that communicate something that we may be trying to avoid. And that may end up dictating how we end up doing something, even though we don't have a thus saith the Lord for each and every minor thing in our service. And so we're going to talk more about that when we talk about elements and circumstances under of worship. So when we talk about elements and circumstances, we're going to talk about this. How might we decide how we're supposed to sit or stand or kneel when we receive the Lord's Supper? Um, and how do we think through that? Okay, so under King Edward, Cranmer tries to forge a doctrinal consensus uh, with the Protestant churches. Uh, Cranmer and these other Protestants draft what's called the 42 Articles of Religion. It's an outline of systematic theology. Um, The articles represented what we might call a restrained Calvinism. So this is sort of, it's still meant to be kind of modest, kind of mild. It's not meant to be hardcore, but it's just enough to make Protestants happy. Um, it never gets approved by parliament and that's because Edward dies and who becomes the queen? Mary, bloody Mary. So we don't have time to talk about bloody Mary now, but we're going to talk about bloody Mary next week. Uh, what a cliffhanger, what a scary, creepy horror themed cliffhanger. And it should feel that way. It is. It is a horror thing. I don't know how Edward died. Convenient for Mary, not for the reformers. But hopefully you will see that actually it is God's providence. It is good that the reformers get scattered out of England and have to go and hang out with Calvin for like five years, you know. Because when they come back, they're even better than they were before. They're like supercharged, you know. It's like like in Jaws. It's like in Jaws when uh, they keep feeding the barrels to the shark and he just keeps taking them. It keeps going lower and lower. That's what the Protestants are like when Mary comes to power like like they just get supercharged by getting sent away and persecuted so it's all good it's all good um let me pray for us and then um we can talk some more about this stuff uh heavenly father thank you for your work thank you for your work around the world um we especially thank you for those faithful people 
Lord, in England who pursued change for the church, Lord, who uh, called the church to submit to your word. I pray, Lord, that we would also be people who submit to your word. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.